Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome back to episode 295 of Sexology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. And as always, I am thrilled that you are tuning into our show today. In this episode, we're going to talk about religious sexual shame. We're going to talk about how you can have more embodied experiences during sex. But before I tell you all about this episode, I wanted to share a gift that I have for you. Few years ago, I wrote this book to help my female clients who are struggling with low desire to cultivate healthier desire. One of the challenges that I see that many of the cisgender women are experiencing is the struggle to be able to want to have sex. So this, if this is you, I wrote this book for you. I'm going to talk about in this book the details of what you can do to figure out what is a challenge and what are some of the actionable tips that you can incorporate tonight to improve your desire. The link is in the show notes and the book is completely free. As I mentioned today, we're going to talk about the impact of purity culture and our sexual health. We're going to talk about how does feeling shame about one's sexuality show up during sex. We're going to talk about what is sexual embodiment. We hear this term, it's more of a popular term that we hear, and sometimes we don't know what does that mean or how can we cultivate it. Our guest is Jenny McGrath. Jenny is a somatic psychotherapist movement educator and researcher based out of Seattle. She works primarily with white cisgender women who grew up in a fundamentalist Christianity who are healing from religious sexual shame and sexual abuse. She researches purity culture and its impact on individual and collective bodies. She has tons of great offering and product and she has her course you can check all of that at her website at www.inwellmovement.com i also wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor cozy earth they produce one of the best premium bedding and loungewear that i ever owned i have their sheets and i have their pjs and i love them both i tell you all about my experience with their product at the end if you would like to support this show and also get 40% off of your first order all you need to do is type sexology in the link below the url is cozyearth.com forward slash discount forward slash sexology without further ado here's my conversation with jenny mcgrath Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to welcome Jenny McGrath on our show. Jenny, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. This is the second time we are having a conversation about this. And I feel I butchered your last name. Did I say it right? Yes, you did. Yeah, that's perfect. (laughs) You were practicing it 20 seconds before, but I'm so bad with names that I want to make sure I was getting 
getting it right. Uh, well, we'll come back. I'm very excited for us to continue our conversation about sexual embodiment, impact of purity culture. And I know that you've been involved in a very interesting study. That's an extension of what you do. So can you tell us more about your study? Sure. Yeah. So I am a member of the Purity Culture Research Collective. And we are a collective made up of professors and scholars and therapists and artists and activists, all looking at various aspects of purity culture. And so my study is what I'm calling transnationalizing purity. And so I'm looking at this phenomena that happened in the early 2000s to mid 2000s, where there was this huge influx of predominantly young, white, cisgender women who became missionaries or development workers. And I'm looking specifically at Uganda, although it happened really across the globe. And so I'm interrogating the question of why. What messages that we learned in purity culture sort of primed us to decide to do this? Why was there this huge movement that happened with the generation of people who grew up in purity culture in the 1990s. And then 10 years later, many, many, many decided to do at least short-term, if not long-term development work in Africa, which is part of my own story. And so my research is deeply personal and also very professional based on over six years of researching through understanding both the subjective experience of I'm looking at predominantly young white women, young cisgender women, and also looking at literary research. And so I'm tracing what I call the trope of young white women and kind of the construction and the ideology around what it quote unquote means to be a young white woman and how there's so much rhetoric and binary messages about bodies, about gender, about sexuality. And so how does the ideology of purity culture impact the individual body and also our collective social bodies? Well, that is such an interesting conversation and interesting topic. And in this current series, we're going to examine the role of religion and shame around our sexual health. So tell us if, if you feel comfortable a little bit about your story. What do you think was the impact on you? Yeah, great question. So I grew up in Colorado Springs. And so for folks who know purity culture in the 1990s, Colorado Springs was one of the epicenters of purity culture. It was the birthplace of what are called purity balls, which were essentially a wedding ceremony between young girls and their fathers in which they were pledging their virginity to their father to hold oh until, yes, <laughs> it's a very appropriate reaction. <laughs> um, so I, I didn't have an actual ball, but I did get a purity ring on my 13th birthday with the assumption that meant I would completely abstain from any type of sexual thought, much less act. And so what that did for me personally was create a lot of dissociation from my body, the really normal, natural sexual responses of excitement or arousal. 
I interpreted as sinful and as something that I was doing that was bad or wrong. And so I really had a severed relationship with my body for a really long time. And through that, ended up having some pretty serious health concerns. By the time I was 20, my nervous system started talking back and saying, I need you to pay attention to me. And so my journey for the last decade has really been one of coming back to my own body and really processing the ways in which these messages about what my sex meant, what my gender meant, and kind of trying to shed those compulsory ideas and let my body be a body and know that my excitement is good, my feelings are good, my pleasure is good. And it's taken a while (laughs) to get there. And so that's been a little bit of my journey within purity culture. What resonated with me is well, I know in the past I shared with you, I also come from a conservative background that this kind of like idea of the pressure of women being certain way and what it does is cause you and lead you to disconnect from your body because right. we all, if you're tuning our body, we're experiencing pleasure and excitement and pain and all of that. And for the longest time, people were complimenting me how I can endure pain doing long distance races, things of kind of that nature, because you get trained to check out of your body. So I think that's, that's the byproduct that when when you check out in your body, of course, then sex wouldn't be as great. So I I connect with that part that you mentioned that like your uh, nervous system was talking back because of when you, you can just ignore it for so long. Well, and in your research, you said you're examining this with lots of other women that experience the same thing. What are some of the common themes that you're noticing? Exactly what you're saying. I have come across so many women that talk about feeling disconnected from their body. And especially for women who moved to Uganda, a lot of folks moved to war-torn regions. They were living in living conditions that they were not used to growing up in predominantly suburban United States. And there wasn't a lot of registration of the danger that they were in or the difficulty that it was on their body until something usually drastic happened health-wise or in their experiences that kind of came as a wake-up call or didn't. You know, I'm, I'm interviewing folks who both decided to leave the world of ministry and development work and folks who are still in it. And so want to honor that there are vast experiences in that. But one of the primary things that I'm seeing is this moderate to severe form of dissociation. And it's not uncommon that women will say, I actually don't feel my body. I don't know when I'm hungry. I don't know when I'm in pain. You know, in my own experience, I remember for years, I would say, my body's like a camel, like I can go forever without eating or drinking, and then I'll just like binge. And there wasn't this really intuitive way of caring and nurturing my body. And I've seen that really time and time again with women who grew up in this world that it wasn't safe to inhabit their pleasure, their body in any way. And so the safest place to go often was just away from their bodies. And it can put you in a situation, as you mentioned, that can be 
not safe, not risky, because our body is a kind of navigation that gives us lots of data and has so much wisdom. And we, when we are training ourselves consciously or unconsciously to disconnect from it, it can have negative consequences. I'm not familiar with what would entail as someone kind of doing those missions, going on those missions. What does that feel like? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of correlation between the way that young white women are socialized in purity culture and white saviorism. And so there's this really strong sense of, I need to go save Africa, honestly, is a lot of what the experience is without a lot of understanding about the history or the socio-political landscape or why there is a war going on. And so it's often that folks aren't just disconnected from ourselves, but we are disconnected from perhaps well-meaning intentions to go help and serve, but it often isn't from a place of liberation. It's from this place of saviorism. And so what I'm looking at is how purity culture is really correlated to both racism and sexism and the ways in which white women end up perpetuating this system of white saviorism and kind of thinking, you know, it's it's a common thing that I've seen in my research where there's this sense of martyrdom, like the harder, the better, the more dangerous, the better, the longer I go without food, the better. That means that I'm really doing something good and right. And it kind of is this performative nature of what it means to be a woman, that you're supposed to serve, you're supposed to give, you're not supposed to be connected to yourself, much less sexually, right? That's often just not even on the table, because there's more of this emphasis on how am I going to take care of other people at the expense of my own body and my own nervous system. Right. And I I can completely see that, that kind of like I've been uh, kind of different part of the spectrum, although I don't identify as a white woman, I am a woman of color, but kind of like thinking about this idea of saving people versus kind of the liberation piece of it and the complexity of people's experiences and what entails to help them to get to the place that they want. So I think that's that's very interesting. So, so for our listeners that they're not familiar with purity culture, can you tell us what is that? Yeah, so a lot of times when people talk about purity culture now, what they're talking about is this movement that happened within white evangelical Christianity in the 1990s. And it started with campaigns such as True Love Waits or Silver Ring Thing, which were these really big events in which adolescents were pledging their virginity and their abstinence until marriage. And so that took on different iterations, as I mentioned, the purity balls or purity rings. And there was this hyper emphasis on quote unquote purity, which meant virginity and meant abstinence. And while this started within evangelicalism, it really impacted everyone who grew up in the U.S. to some varying degree in the 90s, because 
of the way in which Christianity and our politics in this country are very embedded. And so through George W. Bush, there was a hyper emphasis on abstinence only education. So throughout the 90s and the 2000s, folks who grew up in not in Christianity, but grew up in public schools were also being indoctrinated with abstinence only education. And there are many problematic things about that. But one of the most problematic things, I think, is that it doesn't teach consent because the idea is that if you're teaching kids consent, they're going to have sex. So if you're teaching them to abstain, you don't teach about consent. And so this just becomes a breeding ground for sexual harm and abuse because there's this binary thinking of sex or no sex. And especially for women who were harmed in those systems, there's not an understanding of, I didn't want this. I didn't consent to this. And so there's even further internalized shame and guilt. And for female-bodied folks, there was a lot of policing of body. Um, there was messages like, don't cause your brothers to stumble. Only frame your face. And, and so there was this really uh, kind of hatred that a lot of female-bodied folks developed for their bodies. Because if you had boobs or if you had a butt or if you had all of these things, then your body was a temptress. And even if it didn't, it, like all bodies were really you know, kind of surveillanced in this system. And I wonder what happened in a global way that which that was the shift. I know that. So I, I moved here when I was a teenager and my mom grew up in Iran during 60s and 70s. And, and she when I talk about different messages and about sex, sexual negativity, she says that that's not what I got. <laughs> Back then oh. in 60s and 70s, it was more, it wasn't abstinent based. It was more of a, kind of a pleasure-based information around sex. And I wonder what happened in my generation and our generation in a way that you're definitely younger than me, that that shifted globally. That is interesting. So tell us about then what would be the, what was the consequence in those community that in Islamic community, the consequence could be even that, but what would happen mm -hmm. For kind of like the American, kind of that community of evangelical Christian women, if they were breaking their vows, what would be their consequence? Yeah, it, it, it was often a form of social death in the form of shame that if you weren't abiding by these rules about how you should perform or not perform sexually, there was a ton of um, kind of just messages about being honestly a whore or a slut. And these were taught often in youth groups through these messages of teaching young girls you are like a piece of gum. And so if you even kiss somebody, that's like them chewing gum. And do you want to give your future husband chewed up gum? Or they would teach these messages like holding a rose and they would pull out petals for, and just say like every sexual experience you have is like pulling out a petal of this rose. And so do you want to hand your future husband uh, just a stem? And so there was so much identity and value wrapped up in the construct of virginity. And so if you weren't abiding by that, then it really was this message that you've lost 
lost your value. Nobody's going to want you. And of course, these are very heteronormative messages. There was no, not even teaching for women who might be interested in other women or not want to marry a man. It was this very specific form of indoctrination. And so, you know, I remember I, I was homeschooled most of my life, but I did go to a private Christian school in seventh grade and was 11 and all of us girls would be herded out into the hallway and we'd have to like reach our hands above our head. And if any part of our stomach showed, we were given a detention and we had to wear clothes from the closet of shame that were wooly and scratchy and huge. And you just, it was just insidious that there was always these messages of you being tainted, you being dirty, you being quote unquote impure. And I will say, too, that that was always a hyperemphasis in the U.S. on white women. And although women of color also have been impacted by purity culture in the United States, the, the stereotype of women of color is often that they are lascivious or hypersexual. And so they don't fit into this binary of purity versus impurity. And so it really is kind of pitting race and sex in these binary categories. And how painful for a young woman around puberty, right? That we all had some level of sexual thoughts and energy and excitement and feeling that you have impure thoughts or you are impure. And even if you explore your body, kind of feeling the kind of sitting with that heaviness of its shame. And as a grow up, that shame, as a grown up, as that shame shows up in our body inside and outside the bedroom. But tell us, how does it show up inside the bedroom for adult women? I think about it in two different ways. One, I think about it physiologically, that we might not even always be consciously aware of the shame messages we've received, but there can be this physiological shutting down. And so I think often that shame can manifest in low desire for sex, in no desire for sex. Ah, it's really common for women who grew up in this world to experience vaginismus and have pain during intercourse because of this tightening and this clenching and this closing in their body. And so I think there's a lot of physiological experiences as well as psychological experiences. And often I think that shame psychologically can manifest as either self-contempt or other-centered contempt. And so either during in a sexual experience or maybe right after a sexual experience, there's often this, oh my gosh, why did I do this? I'm so gross. I'm such a terrible person. Or this projection onto a partner, even if it was consensual, to say, oh my gosh, why did they make me do this? They're so perverted. And so there becomes this embeddedness of criticism and judgment around really normal and natural expressions of being bodies and wanting to be sexual. One of the great things that you talked about and you talk, teach about it is sexual embodiment. We hear this buzzword now, it's like very common, but so many people, they don't know the meaning of it. What does that mean? Great question. Yeah, I I think of sexual embodiment as a process and a consciousness shifting journey 
of letting go of compulsory ideas about what sex is or isn't and really honoring the full spectrum of sexuality to say, if you really, really want to have sex, great. If you never want to have sex, great. There is no right or wrong amount or desire to have and really allowing folks to have an understanding of what they want. And as we've been talking about for female bodied folks, that can be a long process. It is not uncommon that women say, I don't know what I want in general, much less sexually. And so part of embodied sexuality is coming into a state of parasympathetic rest and digest nervous system that really allows us to be present in our body and in our breath. So I I have come up with what I call the four lanterns of embodied sexuality to help folks discover what their embodied sexual ethic might be, knowing that that shifts and changes over time. And so instead of this rigid right, wrong, good, bad binary, I ask folks to consider illuminating a path of curiosity with the four lanterns, which are consent, uh, making sure that all parties are giving willing or enthusiastic consent, care, making sure that consent is reciprocal, that there is some form of mutual benefit for the parties involved, and connection, which often is the longer process of learning what it is to live from the inside out and learning what we like, what we don't like. And then consciousness. I believe that our sexuality doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so part of being an embodied sexual being is being aware of these social constructs of social injustice and how that can show up in sexuality. Who do we end up fetishizing in sexuality? Who do we end up stereotyping? Who is unable to give enthusiastic or willing consent because of power differentials? And so how can we work towards a, collect- a collective liberation that allows all bodies to be safe, to explore and experience sexuality to the degree that they want to. And it's just such an interesting concept of kind of like going on this journey, because I wonder sometimes with my clients, you don't know what you don't know in a way, right? People coming in and saying like, I don't want sex or when we're talking about, and of course, as you mentioned, that's part of it. Like there are people that they don't want sex. They identify as asexual or it's a spectrum. But also many people think about if sex is like pleasing my partner in this particular way, I don't want it. So kind of giving yourself permission to be curious and it's certainly a journey. And I see when I think about it, the first step is breaking the shame piece, because even if you want to show up in your body being curious, you have to be able to tune into your body and that can feel very challenging for many women who grew up with those chain messaging what are some of the practices that can help with that i i really love the resource omg yes (laughs) because it is a website that allows folks in female bodies to explore pleasure with a partner and with themselves and 
because of the ways in which women are socialized in these ways that we're talking about to take care of the other person, that happens both in and out of the bedroom. And so a lot of times there isn't a lot of awareness of what might feel good, you know, and when folks come in and and don't want to have sex, I think it's so important to be curious about that to say, oh, well, you've been having sex for 15 years and never felt pleasure. Of course, you don't want to have sex. That makes a lot of sense. What does feel good in your body? And and even in education on anatomy, you know, there are many folks who don't understand where the clitoris is and that we that many women experience more pleasure through clitoral stimulation rather than just penetration alone and and so some of it is just learning how a body works and that every body is unique and it's okay if you don't like certain things and it's okay if you do like certain things and kind of shedding any idea of what you should or shouldn't like, I think is the first space because our nervous system doesn't respond well to pressure or demand or expectation. Our nervous system really gets to flourish when we feel playful and curious and spontaneous. And so sometimes that's easier to start on our own than with a partner if we have one. And just realizing like, what does self-massage feel like? What does touching myself feel like? What does breathing really deep into my pelvis feel like? What does it feel like to move and stretch in ways that feel really sensual and good from the inside out? I like that you you highlighted that our nervous system is not responding to pressure because I think it's important for people to do self-assessment. One of the even kind of easier exercises we teach women in sex therapy is like to take a hand mirror and look at your vulva. And that even can be very overwhelming for many of these women. So I like that you're kind of like inviting people to kind of like tune into the sensation, move the body the way that feels comfortable, and then kind of like one step, kind of see where you are with that before moving forward with kind of like pushing, getting what you kind of like pushing toward what you think you're supposed to look for. And maybe even if you go on this journey of exploration, you realize you you like certain things and you don't, or maybe you don't even like sex, but at least this is a conscious decision that you're making versus kind of like following a script that's not working for you. Because you talked about sexual pain and I'm always at of how more how much more kind of like frequent I see that in my clients who are coming from a conservative community compared to people from general population that because of this messaging that people are just like not at the place of rest and digest during sex and their bodies are in this place of kind of fear and that that's not lend itself to pleasure you talked about omg as i love their kind of like videos and stories of women and even my conservative clients they they enjoy it and i also know you have a course about this so tell us more about that yeah so i've developed a course based on 
my own journey and the the work that I've done with clients for many years now and the similar themes that have come up about sexuality. And so I have a course that is specifically for female-bodied folks or non-binary folks who are comfortable in a female-bodied focused space. And it has nine different modules that help people, especially that grew up in purity culture or abstinence-only education, which, as we're talking about, really touched a lot of people. And I know I focused in on the 90s, but one of the modules in the course is the history of purity rhetoric, which actually traces 2,000 years of these concepts of what type of body is pure, what type of body is right, and, and the history of sexism and racism So folks that grew up before the 90s, there are still a lot of benefits that they can get from the course. And then there's an embodied sexuality module that goes over the lanterns in much more detail to help folks develop their own sexual ethic as well as modules on pleasure and understanding a more holistic view of pleasure, which can include the orgasm, but doesn't have a goal or an agenda and really opens up space for sensuality in a broad way. And then understanding of sex and gender and these social constructs that we've been talking about of who you are ascribed to be, often based on your genitalia and how those messages impact you growing up. And then anatomy, understanding our bodies from more of a lens of what are the places that might feel good to me? How do I want to explore those? And so there's lectures and then there's also audiosomatic exercises. So there is a mirror exercise for engaging, looking at the vulva. There are different breathing exercises and movement exercises that are really meant to help calm the nervous system and allow folks to understand what does it feel like to be in my body? Can I come even maybe 5% closer to being in my body? And then there's a frequently asked questions page that over the years with students and clients, I've received similar questions about sex, about relationships. And so those are just answered in a few um, short videos. And then that's a kind of living, evolving page. So on that, people can send me other questions that they have. And every so often, once we get a handful of those, we'll be putting out new videos. And so it's really meant to be a comprehensive introduction to the idea of what it means to be an embodied sexual human being. Sounds like a very comprehensive program. And sometimes that's what it takes for people to experience change. Because sometimes people think about, okay, it takes a session or, you know, how we see these talk shows that like within a two minutes, the doctor right. prescribes something and your issue disappears. But some of these unlearnings takes a while. And I think it's, I love the concept of course for sexual health material because it helps people to be on their own pace of kind of like practicing things sitting with them so I think it sounds like a wonderful resource before we close our time together is there anything else that you think it would be important for our listeners to know 
Yeah, I would just want to say if anyone is interested in the course, I'd love to offer your community a 20% discount and they can just use the promo code sexology on the course. My website is indwellmovement.com where they can access it. And it really is, you know, I, I view while I think that there is so much benefit that can happen with content and like tips and tricks, I myself am much more of a process oriented person. That's just how my body exists. And so the course is really intentionally dozens of hours of engagement. There's also, I forgot to mention, there's like an over a hundred page workbook that people can continue to work through so that they're really getting to experience a process of unlearning and relearning. So hope that can be a resource for your audience. Otherwise, just want to say again, thank you so much for the work that you do and for having these kinds of conversations and really normalizing sex and being sexual. Because as you talked about this shift that's happened, not just in the U.S., but really in many places that there haven't often been these conversations about what it means to be a body, especially a sexual body. So just really grateful to be here today. Thank you, Jenny. It was my pleasure to learn about your work. Thank you for sharing all of these wonderful resources, information with us. And for people who are interested, you can find Jenny's course in the show notes. And thank you again. And hope we'll have you back soon. Would love that. Thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. This is a topic that's very close and dear to my heart because one of the challenges that I had was being able to really showing up as myself during sexual experiences. And it wasn't until the time that I learned some of those messages that helped me to have truly pleasurable experiences. Because sometimes what was happening for me is that in my mind, I knew that sex is okay and sex is good and the time is healthy. But in my body, I wasn't feeling that. So unlearning some of those negative messaging has helped me to be able to show up more authentically in my body and in the bedroom. At the end, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Cozy Earth. My husband and I are obsessed with their sheets. They are truly the softest sheets that I've ever owned in my life. We got so many fancy sheets as part of our wedding gifts, but I didn't know about Cozy Earth until a few months ago. And before, whenever I was walking, waking up in the middle of the night, sweating, because one of the challenges that I had whenever I was sharing a bed with someone that was the increased temperature of the sheets in the middle of the night. And one of my favorite things about Cozy Earth Sheet is their cooling and temperature regulation. So if you are interested to try their sheets and you want to support this podcast, make sure you are using our code SEXOLOGY to get 40% off. All right, I can't wait until next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.